To, to remember and be reminded that we gather together uh, on Memorial Day, uh, something that was established years and years ago. As a matter of fact, it really was a outflow of the Civil War. Uh, there started being a, a desire to go and decorate the gravesides of those who died in war times. Uh, originally, as a matter of fact, uh, John A. Logan was uh, the first one to kind of really push for this. 1868 started pushing for uh, us to have a Memorial Day where we remember those who died while serving our country. We've changed Memorial Day a little bit. You hear people talk about uh, remembering people who died, who have died, who served our country. The initial reason for Memorial Day was those who died while serving. And my guess is this morning you have those individuals in your lives. I, there have been individuals who are part of my youth ministry uh, who passed away overseas. Um, then there are those that many of you have had as family members and some of you as, as colleagues and, uh, and brothers in arms, uh, sisters in arms as well. And uh, we know that Memorial Day represents a, a very uh, real aspect of our American life, especially remembering those who give us and who have paid the way in a lot of ways for us to have this luxury of walking into church on a Sunday morning. Uh, it, is the, it is those who have been before us, who have done things before us, that we live in the ripple effects of their suffering, of their sacrifice, and oftentimes take for granted. I, I think it's a bit of an irony that on Memorial Day would be one of those Sundays especially that we should be giving God praise that people before us paved the way for us to be able to do this so freely. Amen? And yet we oftentimes spend Memorial Day as a holiday and don't go to church. Of course, I'm talking to the choir here. I, I appreciate that. But I mean, it's, an, it's a bit of an irony to me that people celebrate this freedom that they've been given by those who went before them and actually died in the process, that uh, we use that freedom almost as an act of rebellion against God to go do what we want to do. So I appreciate you all being here and, uh, and putting God in proper place of saying thank you for whatever reason for letting us be born here. I know that many of you have those individuals, and Memorial Day has become a little bit of a, of a bigger, um, not just celebrating those who died in combat, but also uh, those who served and have passed away. We decorate the graves oftentimes of those. Uh, the last time I preached uh, from the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning was actually at my grandfather's um, memorial service uh, back in February, I believe February 2 of 2019. It's been a little while since I've been in this text. Uh, my grandfather was one who served in World War II. Uh, one of those, his, uh, his, the men he went overseas with ended up joining up, if you know much about World War II history, uh, his group ended up joining with Merrill's Marauders, which uh, launched the Ranger program. Uh, they were a pretty interesting group of dudes and, uh, and walked through some pretty difficult roads together. Uh, but these types of Sundays remind me of those that I've known. <clears throat> And I, and I appreciate them. They're the, the stories that come from that level of sacrifice are very inspirational to us. And so today, I think it's very appropriate that we'll look back at a story that really has a bit of, um, I guess, military flair to it in that you have an individual who is defending and, and sacrificing and taking great risk for those who are behind him, for those that he represents. And, uh, and for that, we look into a story in Judges chapter 3. I'll not read to you the entire story this morning. As a matter of fact, I'll reference back and forth. The one passage we'll read will be in another book, and we'll get there in a few moments. But we're looking back at an individual who was a judge. Uh, if you look back at the story of Israel, there were times when they followed uh, God as a, uh, a, a fire or a cloud pillar in the skies. There were times when they had Moses speaking to them. There were times in their story where Joshua was kind of the, mouth, the mouthpiece speaking to them. Eventually, they decided they wanted kings like everybody else, and God told them, this is a bad idea. It's not going to go well for you. And they said, we want a king anyway. And so at one point, they had kings for a while. And as oftentimes happens when you put men in place instead of God, things fall apart. Amen? 
Yeah, look around. Things fall apart when you put men in place instead of God. This is how these things happen, all right? We've seen this and we read about it in the Old Testament. There's another section in which there were judges who were put in place to kind of not really rule over but make difficult decisions. We read about people like Deborah, uh, Othniel, uh, Ehud is one that we'll be talking about. Uh, Gideon was another. We read about these individuals. And this morning we're reading about one that was very, very odd in that it mentions him as a left-handed judge. Any lefties in the room? I'm about to brag on you, so go ahead and raise your hands. Lefties, all right? Um, based on, this will be interesting to hear your comments or to, hear, to see your facial expressions. Based on the Federal Bureau of, I'll oh, make sure I get the, their name right, give them proper credit, uh, of National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, lefties are paid on average 15% more than their right-handed counterparts in the same jobs. Do you feel better compensated? Landon, are you better compensated than your... When we talk TVA, let them know that you deserve a 15% because that's kind of the national average. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about that later on. You also read about them that it has been proven that they are oftentimes much more uh, statistically higher rate of having better ambidextrous qualities, all right? Not amphibious, that's different. Ambidextrous, all right? They're able to use both hands much better. And then another thing I found very interesting, in a uh, health article that was released several, several years ago, uh, they found that left-handed people recovered from brain injuries at a much faster and more complete rate than those who were their right-handed counterparts. That's fast. I have no idea the link to that, okay? But like from anything from concussions to strokes, they said that these people who are left-handed. And so in our context, when you read about people or you talk about people who are left-handed, we also know that like stereotypically, and there are statistics to back this up, they're oftentimes more gifted in arts. They're more gifted in uh, precision type things, left-handed people. We, we've, we've studied these things, very interesting. But you need to go back and know that like, look, if you're a left-handed person in biblical time, it's not necessarily a good thing. Because if you're left-handed, that means that you're normally reaching and operating with your left hand, right? That, that's the primary that you go to. And you need to remove yourself from your very American understanding of what left-handed means and go back in time, or better yet, just travel the world a little bit. As a matter of fact, you start traveling into other countries and you'll recognize one of the mission trips I've been on Overseas, I remember one of the culture things. We had kind of classes about uh, gatherings where we were taught about how to operate within their cultures and how to show proper respect. There was a, a guy who was kind of a chief of a, of a region of people, and we were going to go into his region and share the gospel. And he was okay with us doing that, but the proper thing to do is to show up where he lives in his compound, show up where he lives, and send your leader, which, by the way, needs to be the first step. Your leader walks in and says, the missionary team is here, and they'd like to greet you before they enter into your part of the, of the territory. And so when that happens, the gentleman, and it's normally an old man sitting under a shade tree. That's the best way I can describe it. It's an old guy sitting under a shade tree. And we walk up, and sure enough, this older gentleman, now in their context, old may not mean the same thing to you, but when you've got a life expectancy in the mid-50s, you've got a guy who's 60, 65 years old, he's ancient in their world, okay, because people don't live as long in this context. And as we walk up, one of the things that they told us was, when you walk up, one of the ways to show this man respect is to walk up and, and do not look him in the eye, but walk up with a, a place of humility and extend your right hand for him to grab. And at that point, if you want to make eye contact, it's more okay. But don't just walk up like we Americans normally do, looking at each other, especially us Southern Americans, looking each other in the eyes from a distance, okay? This is not the way they operate. They said, extend your right hand, and if you are truly honored in someone's presence or you want to show them a great sign of respect, you will put your left hand on your forearm and shake hands with them. 
And so, like, that's how we were taught to greet. And you start asking the question, like, well, why would you do that? So, you're like, you walk up and, you know, and, of course, you don't have anything to say because they speak a language that's several languages removed from the English language. And so, we'd walk up and shake hands and then back away, you know, not turning our back on him or anything, trying to show as much respect in his culture as possible. And so, we did those things and walked away. And the reason is, I'm not trying to be crude, but you all need to know, like, the Bible deals with some things that your American culture may think is a bit crude, but it's just the nature of life, okay? Like, let's go ahead. I want you to look at everyone in the room, okay? Just spin around and look at everybody. All those people go to the bathroom just like you. Okay, like you may not think they do, but they do, okay? Otherwise, they wouldn't make it here today, all right? It'd just be bad for them, all right? The left hand is for all things hygiene, Okay, the right hand is for things that are of professional or signing or shaking hands and those sorts of things. And so as a way of respect, you would never extend your hygiene hand, all right, in order to greet someone because that's a sign of great disrespect to someone. And so when you hear about this man in this segment of time and you're reading about him being a left-handed judge, you've got to know that throws a little bit of, of different into, <clears throat> into the story of who he is. It even says in the same chapter, Judges 3, that he had, had fashioned a dagger to his right hip. Normally when someone would draw, they would draw from the opposite side to pull. And if you're a right-handed person, you would have whatever knife, blade, weapon, whatever that you might have, it would be fashioned to your left hip and you would pull. It says in the Bible he was a left-handed with a right-handed da- with a, a dagger fashioned to his right hip. Now, Ehud has been living very similar to Gideon, okay? They've been under the king of Moab, which by the way, you start reading these stories and it sounds like something that should be in some great novel. Ehud has the, the, the antagonist in his story is Eglon, king of Moab. Say that like it should be in some sort of big book. You know what I mean? Like Ehud of the Israel. Eglon, king of Moab. You know, like you, you kind of get this like feeling of what the story is. Like it just feels like something that should be lived up and told, you know, in, in like in grandeur. Regardless, they've been under control by Moab for some 18 years. And by control, it's somewhat similar to Gideon uh, with the Midianites. A little bit different though. In this case, Moab would take like taxes from them, would make them uh, take a lot of stuff from them. The Midianites were known for just coming through and wiping everybody out, right? But the Moabites would come through and they would expect taxes and they would expect gifts as a matter Matter of fact, you read in Judges chapter 3 something to me that is so odd. Ehud is on his way to, as most translations write it in the English language, to pay tribute to Eglon, bringing him gifts. This is so weird that you would be giving gifts to someone so that they won't treat you worse. Like that's the picture that you have in your mind. Like if we treat him nice, maybe he won't take too much of our stuff. That's the picture that we're reading in this. Okay, like This is how the, the system works. Then it says that Ehud was the one to go pay tribute, and so he takes this journey, and there are companions who are with him that are taking whatever gifts they're going to bring, and they make the trip over to see Eglon. They get into his palace. They give him the gifts, and then they start going back. And then you read in the story, like I can't imagine this. You read in the story as he's going back, it says uh, near Gilgal, he begins to stop and he sends his counterparts on and says that he's got a message he's got to go back to tell Eglon about. Can you imagine for just a moment, what sort of emotions would you have when you just had to go give gifts to the guy who treats your people horribly? You know what I mean, the guy who takes your stuff the guy who is the big bully in kindergarten, okay? Like, the guy who is the one who, like, he's going to treat you awful. He shows massive disrespect to you and your people. He takes all your stuff, you know, all those things. And yet your assignment was to go give this man more gifts so hopefully he won't treat you as bad. 
What sort of emotions and what sort of thoughts do you think are going through Ehud's mind as he's returning back home? You ever been disgusted with something? I can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe I'm pacifying this guy. Like, I'm, the, I'm having to go and give this guy gifts, and he's treating... We are the people of God. We are God's people, and I'm having to go give this guy gifts so that he'll treat us better, because the reality is he's going to continue treating us awful, and he continues to go back, but then he sends his buddies, the companions, the people he's traveling with, he tells them, go on back. Carry back to, to wherever you're going. I'm going to go back to see Eglon, and, and I'll be there later. The story moves to where Eglon returns back He shows up back at uh, Ehud, returns back to Eglon. If I get those mixed up, please forgive me. Ehud returns back to to the king of Moab, Eglon's palace. He shows up there and he tells him that he has a a bit of a a secret message. I have something I need to tell you in private and in secret. And then I wonder sometimes, like, what was Eglon's thoughts there? I mean, the guy just brought gifts. Maybe this person who brought Eglon gifts, maybe Eglon is thinking like, hey, he's got an inside track on something I need to know. I, like, this is the guy who brought me gifts. I can trust him, that kind of thing. But it says that they, re, they retire to the well-ventilated chamber. All right? The well-ventilated chamber is on the top row, <clears throat> the top part of the palace. Um, it reminds me, I've, I've probably been a while um, since I've mentioned this. I, I do from time to time. There was a five-year stint of my life that I worked in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, we helped people who, who were dealing with mental disorders of all sorts, uh, some who just needed uh, medical changes, not medical, but medicinal changes. You can only change so many meds at one time without needing to hospitalize someone because of the possibility of side effects and those sorts of things. And so I'd work in a hospital uh, that would do those sorts of things. We'd also treat people if they had been off of their medication, maybe uh, from schizophrenia, uh, maybe from extreme manic and depressive disorders uh, where they were cycling very quickly and very rapidly. You know, we had a facility that I worked in where for anywhere from three days to 14 days, we could help stabilize people. And so I did that for a while. Um, The first floor that I worked on was the acute unit, a very intense, and some of what you would stereotype psychiatric facilities would be like. It was pretty... uh, uh, mentally taxing. Uh, in the latter years of working in that hospital, my blood pressure, low number and high number, would go up between 20 and 30 over one shift. 20 and 30 points over a over a shift. And so, like, it's a it could be a pretty uh, a pretty daunting place to work in some settings. Up on the fourth floor uh, was where our geriatric and Alzheimer unit was, mostly um, memory loss type disorders that we were working with people. And for the most part, let me tell you, those individuals were a, were a joy to work with, um, especially if, if in their dementia or in their Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's they had um, gone far enough to where they didn't drift back and forth between knowing that they were sick and not. One of the most frustrating things you can see is when people drift from knowing that they're sick and they've been gone for maybe a few weeks or a few days and then they drift back into knowing that they're well. That's a frustrating place for those people to be. And you need to know that when your loved ones are in that segment, what causes some of their frustrations is that they're realizing what's going on in certain spurts. I can't imagine what that is like, but it's a very difficult place for them to be. Once the, once the disease had, had manifested to the point that they no longer were swinging back and forth, it really became a quite pleasant place to work because I would show up on the floor every day and I had 16 grandparents who didn't know I existed. And so like, I'd walk on the floor and like, I'm Daniel, good to see you. I'd seen him the day before. Oh, it's so good to see you. You look just like my grandson. You know, I'd have that every day. Come back the next day, you know, hi, Miss so-and-so, I'm Daniel. You know, you look just like my grandson. Really? Every day it would be like that. And and for the most part, that's a very, it's something that I, I wished for people that were dealing in the frustrations. At some point, it became pleasant again for them in that, in that horrible disease. There was one individual who came in 
And I can remember him uh, coming on the unit. He had one of those canes that are they're not quite as popular today. It was before. Today we've got the canes that will stand up that have like the little tripod thing under them. This was the four-legged version. Some of you remember seeing those in the past. And he walked in such a way with squeaky shoes, which made this story even better. He would move his cane forward, and it would take him about three steps to catch up. So it would be, rink, 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 rink. Rink, 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 like this. This is how he came in the hospital. And so he came in the first floor. We put him in a wheelchair. We take him up to the fourth floor. He's been on the hospital uh, uh, floor for a week, maybe 10 days, somewhere there, been there a while. Nice little old guy. But when he talked to you, he talked like this. You couldn't hear him for anything. He whispered everything. So doing a daily check and a daily, you know, actually multiple times a day, interviews and questions and how are you doing and how are you feeling and all those sorts of things. So the gentleman's in his room. He's been on the unit for a week now. He's in his room, and his doctor shows up to come check on him. And so the doctor comes in, finds him sitting there on his bed. His little cane's right beside him, and he's sitting there like this. And the doctor comes up and, hey, you know, Mr. So-and-so, because you can't say the names. How are you doing today? And the guy goes, hey, Sammy, Sammy, like this, you know. So the doc gets a little bit closer, you know, like this. And, and the, the guy says, hey, Sammy, Sammy, and, you know, does this a little bit closer. The doc leans a little bit more. I'm telling you, the doctor is leaning over this guy when little old guy who's been doing this for a week reaches between his legs underneath the bed. He has been stockpiling urine. He comes up with this thing and goes whoosh, jumps up and tears off running out of the room, down the hallway, goes in the nurse's station, jumps up in the window, out into the lobby, tears off, hits the button on the elevator and goes down. Doctor comes out, catch that guy, where did he go? You know, like, and they're like, who? And they're, you know, Mr. So-and-so's like, he can't go fast the turtle. I'm telling you, he's gone. You know, like, so like they start looking, he goes to the first floor. They all jump in the elevator. They're trying to go down and catch him. They go down to the first floor, can't find him for anything. Okay, gone, gone, gone. They go back up to the fourth floor, can't find him again. They're standing on the fourth floor in the kitchen area, has all these windows out there, and talking about how are they going to call the director of nursing to let them know they have someone escaped. That's a bad phone call, by the way, okay? And they're sitting there, and somebody goes, oh, it's him. He's in the parking lot. Get him. And so, like, they tear off back down the elevator, go out, and finally catch up with him as he's crossing going to Centennial Park in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where the guy's headed, all right? When they catch up to him, of course, they finally, he's run out of breath by this point in the game. They've caught it. They have to go back and look at the cameras. And this gentleman had studied for the last week Come to find out, the guy like my grandfather was in some of the in initial companies that created some of our special forces. He had convinced himself that wherever he was was an enemy camp, and he had been looking for his way to get out for a week. So he knew if he jumped out of this window and got through these doors, he could go down to the third floor. We saw this all on camera now. Once you got a chance to go back and you realize what this guy did, he went down to the third floor, <clears throat> came out, went around a corner, and stood in a nook, real still, just stood in the nook. Listen for the elevators because he knew they'd be coming after him. They went down to the first floor, couldn't find him. And then they start coming up to the floors looking. They'd come out in hallways and do this. Walk right past him, going down the hallway, trying to find him. They're frantic. They're moving. As soon as they went past him, he comes right back out, hits the button on the elevator and stands there like a visitor. Goes to the bottom floor, walks up to the desk out there because there's four, four or five locked doors between where he was and getting outside. Goes up to the front desk, goes, Hi, my name's Mr. Metters. I was up seeing Bill Taylor up on the fourth floor. Would you mind letting me out? I forgot my badge. Sure, honey. Out the front door he goes. The whole thing was planned. He'd been working us for a week, you know. I'm telling you, sometimes, sometimes people have more up their, up their sleeve than you may realize. That's the best way to say it. Go back to Ehud for just a minute. Ehud tells this man, come in close, I've got something to tell you. Eglon leans over and gets closer. And I, I see, and from my, my memories of working in the hospital, I say, no, 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 come in a little bit. I've got something real quiet to tell you. 
And when he gets closer, the story in Judges chapter 3 is with his left hand, he reaches for his dagger, plunges the knife into the belly of Eglon, king of Moab. And folks, some of you who think the, the Bible is a bit boring from time to time, you need to go read Judges 3. I'm going to tell you some things. You, some of you are going to think, and some of you are going to think, whoa, that's awesome. It says that when he let go, he plunges the knife through so far that the dagger pierces through the man's back. And when he lets go, the fat engulfed the haft or the hilt. You know what that is? That's the entire handle. When he, I love this part too. I've done this in youth ministry for years. I like to think that it made a sound. Are you ready? That's what it sounded like in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. The handle buries, okay? Some of you are like, I'm going to puke on his church floor. That's exactly. So like, I'm telling you, like, he lets go, and the guy, after this part, Ehud tears off running, goes back out of the well-ventilated chamber, escapes out the back door, essentially, locks the door behind him and takes off. And now you fast forward a little bit more and read the rest of the story. Eglon, he's been in the, I, you know what I've called it several times now, the well-ventilated chamber. You know why it's well-ventilated? Most everyone believes in this story. It is the bathroom area that Ehud took him into to have this conversation. The well-ventilated chamber. Folks, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just telling you, this is the nature of things. As a matter of fact, it says his guards didn't know when to go in and find him because they were afraid he was relieving himself. Folks, can you imagine being one of those guards for just a moment? The king is in the bathroom. How many of you, when you go... You, and I don't want to raise hands because this is going to get real personal. How many of you, when you go to the bathroom, you are there strictly for business? You take care of business and you're gone. And then there's others of you. <clears throat> I don't know. This is the most. You are meditative poopers. That's all I know to say. <laughs> meditative. You're there thinking. You got time. You know what I mean? Like this is your checkout from the rest of the world. Some of you don't care what else is going on. This is your time. And it's like 30 minutes for this whole operation to take place. At some point, these guys who are outside are thinking to themselves, I mean, like, you want to go check on him? I ain't going in there. That's the king. You imagine walking in the king, going to the bathroom? Have you ever walked in on somebody? It's not fun. You know, like, very embarrassing. Can you imagine thinking about when we have to go check on the king, right? Eventually, one of them's like, dude, he's been in there a long time. The guy's like, I know, but he ate a lot last night. I mean, he's a big guy. You know, what? how long does it take? I don't know, man. He's usually in there for a while. They talk about this for a while, and finally, one of them goes, we have to go in and find out. They find their king slain, dead on the floor, in the next coming parts of the story, you read that the Israelites, because of this, of Gideon having killed the king, they rise up, they get rid of the Moabites. There's 80 years of peace and prosperity that follow from this. Folks, what's even better in this story, go back with me for just a moment and think about the nature of Ehud killing Eglon. When he does it with his left hand, what is he doing? Notice the irony. I am killing you in the bathroom with my very own poopy hand. I know some of you are like, this is the least proper sermon I've ever heard. It's the Bible. You want to argue with me? That's fine. Go back and read the story. That's exactly what's going on, okay? Now none of you will forget this because that's what's happening. And some of you had it sugar-coated for a long time. It's exactly what happened. It is an insult upon insult. And yet, after all of this happens, Gideon restores peace for his people for 80 years after his existence. And you go back and you look at this story and you're just like, hey, what wild and graphic details to be given within this story, right? On top of all of that for just a moment, would you look back with me? What, remember that, what motivated him? I asked you earlier, what would it have been like for it to be in his mind as he had given tribute to Eglon and he's going back with his companions, remember? What in the world motivated him to turn around? You look back in the Bible and it says, <clears throat> at Gilgal, he turned around. Any of you know what Gilgal is? Oh, 
Joshua chapter 4. Let me read you a story. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. Remembering the story now? Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, your descendants will ask their parents, What do these stones mean? And you tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what He had done to the Red Sea, and He dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and that you might always fear the Lord your God. Ehud is traveling back after giving homage and paying tribute to Eglon, the enemy of Israel. And he sees the stones that they drug up out of the water when God parted the waters and gave them Jericho. He sees the stones, the large 12 stones that his ancestors put on the ground to remind them of a powerful God who has taken care of them and will take care of them in the future. And when he sees them, he realizes... By paying tribute to Eglon and participating in this, I have forgotten the very fact that I serve a God who has time and time again delivered us and saved us. My question for you this morning, when you die, where your children have your stories, will they have the stones piled up to look back and see what God did in your life? You remove those stones, and I wonder how long Ehud continues, the Israelites continue to bow down to Eglon. You remove the memory and the stories of what God has done in, in the people of God's lives in the past, And this story likely never happens. So my question for you this morning is, as you are living this life, are you leaving stones behind so that your children and grandchildren will see what God has done in your life and know that He can do the same, know that that God can do the same in theirs? Where are your stones? What might they look like? Have you told your kids about the ways that God has taken care of you? Have you told them specifically about the things that you are worried about and scared about? There's all sorts of stories in this room. There's all sorts of times when you look back and and God has done something in your life. God has has delivered you from something. Uh, God has provided for you in some way. Some of you, the very children that you need to be telling are absolute miracles because for a while, some of you weren't able to have kids. And like having kids in general is a miracle that your child needs to know. We prayed for you. We prayed to have you. We prayed to have a child, and here you are. And it wasn't a simple thing. Some of them need to know, and I'm not saying you need to share all the gory details. I recognize that the Bible talks about a lot of hygiene-type things in this story. You know, you, you make the determinations with your children at what ages you share what stories in your life. But your kids need to know. They need to know what, what, stones, yeah, what stones are in your past. The good ones. The ones where God did something, where He provided for you, where He answered your prayer, where He took care of you. Because let me promise you something, two things actually. Number one, your children and grandchildren will absolutely find themselves in a place in life where they are proverbially serving Eglon. And when they do, will they have your stones piled up to remind them that this doesn't have to carry on anymore? That you follow in the footsteps of people who have trusted God, who have been provided for, and who have been taken care of. So maybe over this Memorial Day weekend when we're energized to be reminded of those people who have sacrificed for us, maybe within that as well, maybe we're empowered and guided and directed this next weekend even to tell our kids, to tell our grandkids, this is what God's done for me. And this is what He'll do for you as well. God, we come before you this morning looking back at a story that just seems there's so many twists and turns in it. There's so much information that is somewhat comical from our eyes, and yet 
God, it also just adds to the beauty of this story. That's a story of deliverance, a story of you providing, a story of you empowering. Yet, God, in you empowering, God, we also recognize it was because of reminders of you empowering in the past. God, we don't want to find ourselves missing out in our parts of the story or our kids and grandkids missing out on knowing our part of the story. Would you encourage us? God, would you challenge us maybe this weekend over the next days and weeks over life not to hesitate in telling our kids the stories of how you've provided for us? They may very well indeed be the stones of Gilgal that our children need. God, we love you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.